Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate, along with my co-host Matt. Hey. And today we have uh, we're joined by Mr. Kevin Messenger. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. So, Kevin, you want mind telling us a little bit about yourself, how you first got into uh, reptiles, and what you currently do with them? Oh man, that's a, a long story, but sure. Um, Let's see. I think it was about when I was three years old, my father brought home an Indian python from the veterinary hospital that he works at. Um, it had a respiratory disease and we were rehabilitating it. And so he brings it home and um, about 15 feet. I remember seeing it for the first time and just thinking it was the coolest animal I'd ever seen. And that kind of began my love for snakes. Um, Dad also loved snakes. So as I was growing up, you know, he would take me snake hunting. We'd go to South Carolina, different parts of North Carolina, look for snakes. And um, that obviously helps when you have parents that believe in snakes as well. Uh, my mom tolerated them, but, you know, she's still pretty fearful. So that began my love for snakes. And then growing up, I just continued to go to my local library, read every single book I could, buy every single book I could, uh, continue that throughout elementary, middle school, high school. My second love in life was veterinary medicine, because obviously having a father as an emergency vet is pretty exciting going to work with him. But about high school years, I kind of determined looking at his job, which was my primary idea at the time. And he spends a lot of times indoors and I prefer to be outdoors. So I kind of thought, you know, why don't I try to go down the herpetology path and see what I can do, see what I can pull out? Because when dad did, when dad was growing up, he didn't really have that many opportunities for herpetology. Uh, he said he would have if he could have, but in the 70s, that wasn't really a big thing, profession-wise, career-wise. Uh, so in high school, I started shopping around for... Uh, herpetology professors. Um, I sent a email to Dr. Heatwall at NC State, Harold Heatwall, probably the world's expert on sea snakes, as well as tardigrades and ants. Um, he told me to pop by his class that spring. Um, I sat in on one of his zoology 150 classes. And uh, at the end of his class, he had a pop quiz. I went ahead and took that pop quiz. Um, that summer, I went on a coral reef ecology class with Dr. Heatwall down in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And he told me at that meeting or at that class that that pop quiz that I attended as a high school student, um, again, it was towards the end of the semester for NC State. And he said the class average for that pop quiz was like a, a 50 and that I had like a 95 as a high school student that didn't even attend a single class, you know, I just showed up for that one day. And at that point he said, yeah, you know, this, this kid is somebody I want to keep and teach and mentor. So uh, he accepted me into NC state, did a whole bunch of stuff with him at the end of my undergraduate career. Uh, this one job opportunity came up um, to survey reptiles and amphibians in central China um, in a, a group of mountains that had never been surveyed before. 
So basically it was a completely unknown location where they had no idea what lived there and they wanted a student to come and spend four months uh, camping out in the mountains of rural China and just documenting everything, every single thing they could find. And I mean, that's like a dream job. You know, most of us that are heavy into herping and hiking and camping and everything, you know, the concept of going someplace where things are still undiscovered or unexplored, it's just perfect. So I applied for the job. Uh, the, the U.S. side of it was from uh, University of Southern California, Dr. Stanford. And then he had his Chinese collaborator, Dr. Uh, Yiming Li from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. So I applied for the job. Uh, it was uh, down to two selections nationwide, and eventually I got it. So that summer, immediately after graduating from my undergrad, uh, three days later, I was on a plane out to China, uh, showed up in Beijing. Dr. Li took me down to Shenlongjia, which is where this uh, research was to be taking place. And he uh, said, okay, uh, I'll see you again in four months. You know, good luck, have at it. And um, it was an amazing time. Uh, I loved every single day of it. And at the end of that summer, uh, the refuge there, you know, they're really impressed with everything I did. They said, you know, if you ever come back, uh, we'd love to have you again. So in 2008, my mom, my dad, and myself came back to China to the same place, Shenlongjia, and we did another month-long survey, but this time I brought mom and dad with me because they also like to go hiking and camping and everything. And um, at the end of that trip, again, we found lots of new stuff for the reserve, for the province. Uh, the refuge said, you know, again, you did a great job. If you ever decide to come back, we will pay your your food, your housing, your transportation. You just get here and we'll take care of everything else. So uh, during this time between my undergrad, um, I was working full time as a emergency veterinary technician and shopping around for graduate schools. Um, it was about in 2009, a professor from Marshall University uh, sent me an email and told me that one of her projects up there with uh, an endangered salamander was at risk of falling apart. And she needed me to come up and save the project. She needed a really good field researcher that could rough it out in the mountains. Uh, so I signed up for uh, graduate school for a master's at Marshall at that time. Uh, Dr. Pauly was the professor at the time. Um, so I did two years at Marshall for my master's. And Dr. Pauly is amazing. While talking to him and talking about my future, you know, I told him how much I wanted to con continue my research in China because herpetologically speaking, China is like 1920s US. Like there's still a whole bunch that they don't know. There's still a whole bunch unexplored. And most of what they do know is just at the species identification level. like. You know, they'll go out and they'll describe a new species, 
but the knowledge of home ranges and habitat and breeding ecology or you know all the nuances of the natural history of these different animals is mostly unknown or not well studied you know there are tons of species where if you look at natural history of whatever species it'll just say poorly known or unknown so i told dr Polly that i wanted to do a phd with some university that would likely allow me to work in China. He's like, I have the perfect person in, in mind. He said, uh, Dr. Wong down in Alabama A&M. He said he had one, two, three. Dr. Pauly had three previous uh, master's students, um, Bill Sutton, Zach Felix, and Tim Baldwin. All three were previously Marshall students. They then went to A&M, got their PhDs, and so I would be the fourth Marshall student to go from Marshall to AM for a PhD. And so contacted Dr. Wong, told him my experience in China, told him that I wanted to do a PhD in China. And he was all for it. He said, yeah, I'm heading there this summer. He's, he's an ornithologist. Uh, Dr. Pauly said, I don't need another herpetology professor. He said, I know my herps inside and out. There's there's nothing more a herpetology professor could teach me. Uh, he said I needed somebody that was more into stats and gave me a, a different perspective. Um, so yeah, Dr. Paul, or Dr. Wong said, yep, yeah, come down, uh, enroll. We'll head to China this summer. And then every summer from here on out, you can do your field work and then uh, defend. So, all right, I'll keep going because it's it, the story does keep going. <laughs> Um, so every summer starting in 2011, I would, uh, head over to China for basically May to September, uh, do my field work, come back in the fall, do my classes, do my classes in the spring and then rinse and repeat. Uh, well, in one of those years, I think it was 2013. Um, so the way this worked out is Dr. Wong had a collaborator in Nanjing a good friend of his. So Dr. Wong, obviously he's originally Chinese. He's now an American citizen, but um, uh, he has this collaborator with Nanjing Forestry University, a friend of his works there. And so basically whenever our university, uh, Alabama A&M would go over to China, we would kind of use Nanjing Forestry University as our home base. So we'd be, they'd put us up in their international dorms and then we'd use that as our base of operations and then go to our various locations within China from there. Um, so Dr. Ding, one of the, at the time, he was the Dean. He's like, Kevin, you know, you're doing all this research in China. Uh, at the time I had already been filmed for a documentary that was on their version of National Geographic. Uh, he's like, you know, you're well-known, you're famous. Um, you should go ahead and enroll in a PhD program here at Nanjing Forestry University. And that way, when you finish your degree in the US, uh, you can also have a degree from our university here in China. So you can have two PhDs. So I was like, okay, sure. You just had to do a few extra classes. Um, so I signed up for a PhD in China as well. Continued doing my summers, 13, 14, 15, 16. And then in spring of 17, I uh, 
graduated from A&M with my first PhD. Then I flew over to China to defend my thesis in, uh, in China for my second PhD. And then after that, uh, both universities offered me a position uh, that July. They said, hey, do you want a job? We have a professorship open for you. Um, the China job was way more lucrative than the US offering. So I accepted and I've been teaching there since uh, fall of 17. Um, does, is there a diverse terrain in China? And if so, um, does, are there certain areas that are more herpetologically diverse um, than others? Yeah. Uh, China is very, very diverse as far as the geology and the habitats. It's, it's very similar to the U.S. in many ways. Not only is the U.S. and China almost the exact same in land size, like if you were to superimpose them, they pretty much lie right on top of each other. Obviously, the shapes are a little bit different. Yeah. Um, China also has basically the western half of China is nothing but desert. Really? Whereas in the U.S., we have, you know, the majority of our deserts are obviously in the west, but they're kind of in the southwest. Um, the difference with China, though, is their desert is also elevated. So it's a really cold desert. Mm. Um, the vast majority of all the good herping is in the southeast corner. So if, if, if you were to make a comparison to the U.S., if you were to basically draw a line from maybe the north end of North Carolina, go west until maybe Kansas, cut south, that would be the southeastern region. That is where, oh, a good, I would say, seventy-five percent of the herps are in that region. What what makes that uh, region better? That's where all the warm temperature is. That's where all the mountains are. That's where a lot of the rainfall is. Uh, if you go north of that, so Beijing and northeastern China, it's it's cold. There's a ton of agriculture. Um, there's a ton of development. Because of all the mountains in the south, in the southern area, uh, there's not a lot of areas that people can develop. Um, and then, of course, all the, the warmer temperatures and uh, lots of rainfall. And obviously, out west, it's too cold and too dry. Yeah. So, yeah, everything is not everything, but the vast majority is in the southeast. They, as I don't know if you know the answer to this. Um, does the Chinese government do a lot with conservation work? Um, not necessarily with herpetology, but but um, since that's your more of your expertise, yeah. Um, on paper, yes, there's tons of conservation projects. Uh, they're still trying, and and that's another reason why I wanted to work in China because the the concept of conservation and herpetology is so underdeveloped. You know, it's a wide open field for me or mm -hmm. for anybody that's interested in herpetology. There's so much you can do there. Um, so I kind of wanted to bring these conservation uh, ideas and methods and uh, stimulation to the country, to herpetology in China. Um, herpetology specifically, has less conservation than any of the others for obvious reasons. You know, birds always get a lot of attention. Mammals always get a lot of attention. 
But people there, more so than the U.S., I would say, are deathly afraid of snakes. You know, snakes are pretty bad here as far as the general public reputation goes, but in China, it's worse. Everybody hates snakes. You know, I talk about one of the other reasons why herpetology is so open there. You know, in my home state of North Carolina, you know, we have the North Carolina Herp Society. That Herp Society at its peak probably has around 400 members, I would say. And the vast majority of people that attend a Herp Society or a member of a Herp Society, you know, they have a really good knowledge of, of the Herps in their state. I would call most people that are in a Herp Society an expert. You know, there's varying degrees, but if you were to take look at the, all the herpetologists in China, like experts on herpetology, I would say there's probably less than 100 in the entire mm -hmm. country. And you have, what, 1.4 billion people, whereas in you know the state of North Carolina, you have 400 herpetologists. So it's really hard to get conservation efforts going when it comes to these animals that most of them are extremely fearful of. Technically, there's only... There's only a couple species that are really protected. Uh, one is the Chinese giant salamander. You know, we have the hellbender in the U.S. Um, but the the really odd thing about their protection is, even if a species has protection, they will still raise it in farms for consumption. So mm -hmm. the, these giant giant salamanders, they're bred by the tens of thousands. And they're extremely successful with their breeding. Um, and the vast majority of those that are bred will go on to uh, restaurants. So at least they're relieving some of the pressure off the wild populations. I think this started around 2008 is when they initiated their breeding projects. Um, so the wild animals are technically protected. Occasionally, you'll still see locals uh, try to catch them and... Um, I've been around a couple, literally maybe three, that were confiscated by uh, refuge officers and then later released. Uh, the Mangshan pit viper, Protobothrops mangshanensis, uh, it has a level one protection level, which is the equivalent of a panda. So pandas are level one, mangshanensis is level one. And what's kind of crazy about that is a level one protected animal, if you are caught killing it or smuggling it or anything like that, uh, the highest penalty for that is death penalty. Holy cow. Yeah. So if you're caught killing a monkshinensis, technically speaking, you could potentially get the death penalty. It's unlikely, but technically speaking, you could. Um, pythons in most of their range, because they're, it's the Burmese python, the one that we have down in Florida. Um, but in China, they are critically endangered. Um, and they're pretty much protected. And I think that's it. I, I actually, no, um, the water monitor is also protected because they're also critically endangered. Uh, Shinosaurus, the crocodile lizard, is also um, protected. But otherwise, that's about it. So, go ahead, Matt. I was just, yeah, just a real question. Is the Chinese giant salamander, is that uh, related to the Japanese giant yeah. salamander? They... The exact same genus. Okay. Okay. Um, so, 
King Cobra is going to be found in uh, China too, right? And if so, yeah, those... and they they don't have national protection, but they mostly have uh, provincial protection depending on the province. Okay, so like they their population is very regional region then, or is that or state nationwide? Decline? They, I would say they're rare throughout their entire range. They are one of those species that has a really wide distribution, but everywhere they are distributed, they're extremely sp sparse. Like I've, I've only seen two, uh, both were in Hong Kong and Hong Kong has a very good population of King Cobras, um, much more than anywhere in mainland China. Hmm. Um, Would that be the... because uh, it's an urban area and urban areas tend to draw rodents and air go uh, rodent eating smaller snakes or the the thing that makes hong kong really unique is you know for what 100 100 years or 150 years as a british colony and when they were developing it they drew very distinct lines between what is urban and what is protected so when you go to hong kong you can be in the middle of what looks like new york and then you can drive 15 minutes and be in the most remote area you can imagine. And about 40% of uh, Hong Kong is protected. So nearly half of the territory is protected space. And it's truly like, like what we think of in the West as being protected. Like you just go down a trail and all you have around you is trees, rocks, habitat. So there's a ton of protected space in Hong Kong for its size. And that's one of the reasons why I think king cobras are so uh, plentiful there is because all the other habitat is, or all the other species are protected. So there's lots of food for them. And um, yeah, just habitat. There's lots of habitat. Is um, when they're farming the, the Chinese uh, giant salamander, are they putting any back into the wild or is it all um, like for consumption? Yeah, they are putting some back in the wild, and that recently has caused some issues because I think it was last year, it was either this year or last year, uh, somebody did some genetics on the Chinese giant salamander and what was once thought one species is now thought to be four to five species. And hmm. what sucks is a lot of, um, a lot of these, because most of these breeding uh, institutions are nature reserves. And so sometimes a nature reserve might share some of their breeding stock with another nature reserve from another place, because at the time they were thought to be just one species. So you know, kind of like how zoos will share their breeding stock of a certain species, especially if that species needs propagation. So additionally, you have the meat market. So there's been a lot of transportation of individuals from unknown lineages from one province to the next. And now they think the breeding population that they have kind of an admixture of a lot of these separate lineages, which is a bad thing because yes, some of them get released back into the wild. Hmm. Um, okay, so you mentioned the Burmese Python. I've, yeah. I've asked this to two other people. Um, because I was curious, because you know they're as you mentioned they're they're endangered over there, but in South Florida there's all over. Yeah, there's way too many. 
I asked, you know, is would it be feasible to take the ones here and move them over there? They said, well, one, it would be a human resource problem. There would be a big problem with that. But they also said it might bring over diseases and stuff. Yeah. Um, is would is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Would you say that's exactly right? Or Yeah, I, I wish we could just catch all of them from South Florida and ship them back over there to help keep that population, to renew that population that is dwindling. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty much... A no-go i think it would it would there'd be some unknown consequence whether that's disease or uh you're bringing in a population of burmese pythons that are not from mainland china like i don't know where that vast majority of that starter population came from whether it was you know thailand burmese pythons or vietnam burmese pythons or indian burmese pythons where the source population came from but i kind of doubt I, it came from china i think they probably were thai in origin i'm thinking okay. I, I could imagine that because you know thailand has had a really good export business for a long time whereas especially when it comes to herps china yeah. doesn't have a lot especially historically hmm. and so would you so, like, obviously over here, we just, when we catch Burmese pythons, they just euthanize them. Um, do you know of any other, like, is there a, something, like, would you say that's, for right now, the best um, solution we have to it, or? Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you can't rehome them, because that's part of the problem that began the whole situation. Uh, the best thing I would say is... You know, the reason they're dwindling in China is a loss of habitat and consumption. Whereas, you know, the Everglades, that is one massive continuous habitat. And that goes to show you how strong, you know, continuous habitat is. So if you want to get rid of Burmese pythons, one way to do it would be to develop the Everglades. Obviously, that's going to suck for all the other yeah. fauna. Um, alternatively, is to within that development, let people start hunting them, using them for skin and for food. Um, and then, you know, maybe people would eventually chip away at the population, but that's not going to happen. So I think for the U.S., if you're trying to do something other than just euthanize and, and toss the carcass, uh, maybe see if skins can be made a profit from the skins or sell the meat. I, I would rather people eat Burmese pythons than I would rattlesnakes. You know, yeah. all these rattlesnake roundups, they, they chop up the snakes and they cook up rattlesnake meat. Just ship all the Burmese pythons to those rattlesnake <laughs> roundups. Let them do the skinning of Burmese pythons and cook up Burmese python meat instead of rattlesnakes. So, uh, obviously... China has a lot of species you'd typically imagine as uh, Asian species like king cobras and Burmese pythons and water monitors and such. But also has some species that if you saw them in the wild, you would think you're almost in like the U.S. kind of like uh, there are rat snakes and there are pit vipers, stuff like that. So I want to go a little bit in depth about I guess some of the 
some of the similar herbs similarities between East, uh, China and the U.S. Yeah, um, uh, there's actually a lot. Uh, I, I forget his name. Um, he gave a lecture up at Marshall once. Uh, well, he has a chapter in his book that I I copied verbatim just so I could have it for future reference, but it's called the Carolina-China Connection. And in it, he talks about the similarities between the mountains of North Carolina and the mountains of southeastern China. And basically, if you were to be transported from the Appalachians of the U.S., directly into the mountains of China, you would be hard to tell the difference between the two locations. Um, that's because China has, uh, they have dogwood, they have hemlocks, they have hickories, they have rhododendron, they have uh, mountain laurel. They have all these plants. This professor was a plant guy. They have all these plants that are nearly identical and share almost no other populations other than southeastern China and the Carolinas. In this same chapter, he goes on to talk about the fact that, you know, there's only two alligators in the world, Chinese alligator and the American alligator. Uh, you have the giant salamander and our hellbenders. You have Dynakistridon, the sharp-nosed viper, which used to be at Kistridon. Um, all the Gloideus, the Gloideus genus, that also used to be at Kistridon as well. They, The Echistridons, especially... Uh, the most common one is Gloideus uh, brevicatus, the short-tailed mamushi. Um, it's pretty much their version of a copperhead. Uh, the sharp-nosed viper is basically a copperhead on steroids. Gorgeous, gorgeous snakes. I love them so much. Um, what's really cool about a lot of the Chinese vipers, whether they're pit vipers or not, China has... Not only do they have pit vipers, but they also have true vipers. Um, but a lot of their pit vipers uh, lay eggs, which is really unusual, of course. For the most part, the only pit viper in the Western Hemisphere that I can think of is the Bushmaster. But in the Eastern Hemisphere, a lot of the pit vipers in China lay eggs. Um, let's see. The, there's the Russian rat snake, in my opinion, looks pretty much like a mixture between a black rat and an eastern king. Uh, the king rat snake is one of my favorites, especially to find. They're massive. I think the biggest one I ever caught was around 78 inches. But they basically remind me of a mixture between a, a big rat snake, a bull snake, and a king snake. You know, they're they're technically rat snakes. They're, they are elaphy still. Um, but they eat other snakes. They love to eat other snakes. And they, when they hiss, they have that same hiss, kind of like a pituophis. Um, just really cool snakes. Uh, you have the greater green snake. It used to be Cyclophiops, but now I think they changed the genus to Tyus, which I don't think is true. Um, so they basically have a giant version of our green snakes. Uh, Tyus itself is basically a, a black racer, just a, another giant version, seven-foot black racer. Um, a lot of their water snakes look extremely similar to ours. Um, yeah, there's lots of species that look very similar, but with minor differences, enough to make you 
think, oh, that looks cool. You know, it looks like blah, 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 <laughs> but with this type of spin. Yeah. So would that be due to the common ancestors of the snakes, some of the herbs we have in uh, the Carolinas and South China, splitting off and migrating down South China, then over the Bering Land Bridge into the United into the, the Americas? Uh, I don't think so. I think it happened before that land bridge um, was around. I think it happened when, because the, the reason why is a lot of the echistrodons that we have are in the eastern side of the U.S. You have very little on the western side. And if they crossed over that uh, land bridge, you would expect to see some in the western portions of the country before they made it all the way over to the east and then survived in the east. I think it was when uh, the U.S. was still connected to Europe and Europe was connected to China. And so they made it from the east all the way over to China or, or vice versa, from China. And they traveled west to the eastern part of the U.S. And then the continents separated and... They you don't think it could be like... Um like a convergent evolution at all like maybe yes. they're that that's the other that's the other option and that's a very extremely likely one uh i think you know the fact that china has both true vipers and pit vipers means it is a little bit more ancestral like they're one of the sources as opposed mm -hmm. to the us where we basically only have new world species new world vipers pit vipers only you know things are pretty more recently evolved in the US when it comes to venomous snakes. So China kind of is, Asia is kind of like more of a source ancestral population. You have, you know, phase viper is one of the more primitive vipers in the world. Um, you know, they have smooth scales, they have nine large cephalic scales, they lay eggs. You know, the person that found them, found the very first one, he thought it was a colubrid and he just picked it up thinking it was harmless because they don't really have that viper-like head. You know, thankfully it was, they're extremely docile and so it didn't bite them, but um, yeah. So um, something you said kind of piqued my interest. So I, I was kind of already thinking this, but then, you know, you're mentioning how it's so similar to like the North Carolina mountains and everything, how South China is. Um, it's not, it's not considered subtropic, correct? Yeah, it is. It is considered subtropic? The, the, when I was talking about that that line, if you drew a line from northern North Carolina over to Kansas down, yeah. in, in the China equivalent of that, um, all of that is considered subtropic. And then if you were to look at a map, there's a an island on the in the south, the extreme south of China called Hainan Island. The northern half of Hainan is subtropical. The southern half of Hainan is tropical. And so that's okay. the uh, that's the limit. So they do have tropical rainforest, but it's only on the southern half of Hainan. But then you go north of that, and the vast majority of southern China is subtropical. And then as you go north of that, you get into temperate. Uh, that answers my questions, because I, I was thinking it wasn't. So I was wondering how, like, Burmese pythons, you know, being here in, like, subtropical Florida to there, like, how the difference between that. But if they're both subtropic, that answers the question. So Yeah. Um... Joe, go ahead. Did you have a question, Nate? Because there's something I wanted to, but it, it kind of changes gears, so. Uh, go ahead. Okay. Um, so, um, 
you had mentioned that you found some new like species of different like frogs and stuff over in China. Do you want to kind of go into that? Cause that sounds super interesting. Oh, that was my question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So part of the, part of the fun of doing work in China and the whole fact that everything is unknown is um, it's really easy to accidentally find new species. So uh I'll, I'll begin where the first one started, which was um, in 2013, I went to this one place called Wuishan, which is kind of like the herpetological um, center of Chinese herpetology, at least to Western science. Like, excuse me, uh, when Western scientists would come from whatever countries, France, England, Ireland, wherever, uh, a lot of them would always go to this one place called Wuishan. Guadun Village is technically the name. And um, like tons of species have their, their type specimen the, and their type locality as this one little village. It's really strange how many have their type locality at that one place. But so Dr. Ding, the guy that convinced me to enroll at his university, at the university in their Nanjing Forestry, um, he does a lot of bamboo work. In Wuishan. And so one of those summers, he said, Hey, Kevin, you know, I'm going to be teaching some kids from uh, University of British Columbia. You know, can you come down and, um, you know, find some snakes, find some frogs, and, and go ahead and teach the students about the herpetology of Wuishan? Yeah, sure, of course. It's a, a free trip to go catch snakes and frogs and everything else. So why would I refuse? Uh, so I went down there and um, had an awesome time, beautiful place, new herps, very diverse, tons of animals. And after the UBC students left, I asked Dr. Ding, I was like, you know, can I spend some more time down here and maybe turn a little study out of this place? Sure, go ahead. So uh, with Dr. Wong, I brought over a an REU student. REU is Research Experience for Undergrads. So I brought over a US student. He signed up for the REU program and we spent uh, another week down there doing a herp survey of Wuishan. And while doing our surveys, we found this one frog. Now, keep in mind, this is my first time being in this location. So this is my first time being exposed to genera that I've never been exposed to before. You know, it's, it's really, that's another really fun thing. You know, you go to a completely new place, your first time finding, you know, a Phrynosoma, if you've never been out West, a horned lizard, you know, it's crazy cool. Um, so there's this one genus of frogs called Megafrias, the, the horned frogs, horned toads. And according to all the literature, there's two species there, uh, Megafrias batgari, and then Megafrias Quatunensis. So we're doing our surveys and uh, we're finding lots of Megafrius botgari, which is the very common one. And then we go up into the other upper elevations and we find another Megafrius. And Megafrius are really easy to tell because they have these uh, horns on their on their eyelids. Um, and so, you know, we, we get this other one and I'm like, oh, okay, this must be the other one. This must be Megafrius quatunensis. And part of the reasons why I wasn't relying on relying on pictures is because back in 2013, there are no field guides, really, 
for Asian herpetology. Uh, well, I should say Chinese herpetology. Um, the one book, you know, there's the Atlas of Chinese reptiles and then the Atlas of Chinese amphibians. And for the amphibian one especially, the vast majority of the of the plates, when you look to try to identify a species, it's just drawings or, or pictures. And the art is not very good. Like there are some that I've seen before. I'm like, this looks nothing like what the artist drew in the book. So you can't really use this book whatsoever. And it's all in Chinese, um, except for the Latin name. So anyway, so I have this other Megafrius. I'm like, okay, this is obviously the other Megafrius. So, you know, head back to the U.S., start writing up reports, you know, posting pictures on Flickr. Um, for whatever reason, I decided to try and track down some more images of Megafrius quatunensis. And maybe maybe it was in this year, a paper came out that was describing a new species of Megafrius. So I contacted that um, that author. He was from Hong Kong. And I was like, hi, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm Kevin Messenger. I'm doing this research. Um, can you help me with this genus of frog? And I, I sent him images and I told him where it was. And he's like, he's like, yeah, that is not Megafrius quatunensis. And he sent me pictures of Megafrius quatunensis. I was like, oh, okay. Well, then this must be something different, right? He's like, yeah, what you have there is a third species of Megafrius from Wuishan. And according to all the books, there is no third species of Megafrius from Wuishan, from the region, actually. So I was like, okay, that's cool. So in 2014, I made it a point to go, and what also sucks is, you know, I just took pictures of this frog and let it go, because that's you know, typically what I do. Um, so in 2014, uh, I brought on another REU student, and uh, we made it a point to go to Wuishan and try to track down enough specimens that we could describe the species. We spent a week there um, going out to the same place where we found the first one from the year before. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, nothing. Four, nothing. Five, nothing. And, you know, I'm getting obviously really worried. On day six, uh, we found two of this new one. And then on day seven, we find another two. So we had four specimens. We preserved them. We made them into voucher specimens. Um, Hollis was the REU student I brought on that year. Hollis Don, or Dane uh, is how it's pronounced, but it's, you look at it and you think it's pronounced Don. Um, she's a geneticist, so she took some tissue samples and we did some preliminary uh, analyses. And yeah, it was, it was different, but Everybody that I talked to said you should really have about 10 specimens. You can't really describe a new species on four. So 2015, I said, okay, I'll go back over there, try to get our sample size up to 10. Um, in 2015, I went earlier in the year and I just found tons of them. They were all over. So we got our 10. Uh, we described it. Um, so at this time in my career, like, the topic of Megafrius and the genus is really on my mind. So in this same year, in 2015, um, some friends of mine from Hong Kong were like, hey, we're coming up to mainland China to go herp this one area of uh, Guangdong province. You know, do you want to join us? Yeah, sure. Because it was just for snakes. It was road cruising, which is always fun. 
Um, so I go down there to meet up with them. And of course, you know, I'm doing all this background research on Megafreus at the time. So I kind of know throughout the entire country where all the different Megafreuses are. And for, for uh, Nanling, which is where we're going, there's four species that are there. And we're driving around, we're road cruising for snakes. And we get up to this parking lot and we're doing a U-turn and I have the window down and I hear this one little, this one little chirp. I'm like, stop the car. I'm like that sound right there. That is from a Megafreus frog, but that is not any of the sounds that any of the Megafreus that are supposed to be here makes. So that's something different. So we all get out, we track it down. Uh, that was another new species of Megafreus. Yeah. And then later, like the next month, I basically at that point, I kind of said, okay, let me look at a map and look at where, according to liter the literature, there are no Megafreus. And then let me look at all these mountains and determine where I think a Megafreus could be. So there's this one place in Jiangxi province um, that, you know, I told you I was in that little National Geographic, their version of National Geographic. Well, because of that, a lot of people would email me and say, oh, I love snakes, blah, blah, blah. You know, it'd be great to meet you. Can you come to my hometown? Let's go herping, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's this one guy from Jiangxi province that had an open invite to go herping in his province. I'd never been there before. So, you know, I met up with him and uh, he takes me to this one little mountain near um, his hometown. And... Um, we're walk this time we're just walking and a, a megafreus is just hopping in front of me on the road i'm like this guy isn't supposed to be here you know according to all the books there are no megafreus here so you know that was another new species and then i went to a little mountain uh just north of there and uh Pehan is his name uh he and i get in a taxi and we're driving around the the property it's another uh refuge and i just have the window down in the taxi and I hear a, another Megafreus call. I'm like, stop, that's a Megafreus. According to all the books, it shouldn't be here. But uh, I told the taxi driver, you know, just uh, drop us off, come back in 45 minutes. And um, that was another new species. And then the year I graduated, uh, a friend of mine, Bilal from Pakistan, he was into filmmaking. He wanted to do a, a little documentary on me and all these new species I was finding. So I told him about that one Megafreus I just now told you about with the taxi driver. So I'm like, okay, sure. I was like, you know, I only have one or two specimens. I need to go back to this mountain. I need to get some more specimens. So let's go there and you can do your little filming thing um, at this location. So we get there and we're walking around and he's, you know, doing his little show and, uh, I'm like, okay, so this is the sound we're listening for. And I try to describe it. And then we we hear that sound. I'm like, yeah, okay. So that's uh, that's the species we're looking for. And then two minutes later, there's another Megafreus with a different call calling from the other side of the road. I'm like, hold on. I'm like mm -hmm. that right there. That's another Megafreus that I'd never heard before here. So now there's two new Megafreus here at this, at this mountain. So it's just... Really cool. Uh, another one that I'm currently writing on right now, it's in review. It's a tree frog. Uh, my friend came down from Korea. He's, he's French, but he was working in Korea for a long time. 
And he came down to do some work on tree frogs, on hyla, not this other type of tree frog is different genus. And so we're walking around and I, again, I hear this weird call. It's not a megafrius. I was looking for megafrius. Um, but we hear this weird call that, you know, I'm pretty good with most of the calls in the Southeast. And I'm like, I've never heard this call before. I don't know what it is, but I've never heard it before. Let's, let's go check it out. So we go and it's, it's now this new species of uh, tree frog that is currently in review. So it's just really cool to, to be out there and be exposed to all these unknowns, all these mysteries. Like how often in the U.S. do you go to a place, find a snake or find a frog, and you're like, I have no idea what this is. And, and to have that, that sense of mystery or suspense or discovery, you know, it's just fun. I, uh, this is not at all similar in any way, but it's my kind of experience with that is, um, I found a hammerhead slug, which is not a slug. Yeah. It's a, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, first time I found one, I was like, this is the most alien thing in the world. I thought for sure I found something that's never been discovered before. And then short Google search later, I, <laughs> yeah. I found out they're, they're actually yeah. something yeah. common. So, but Anyways, that was that was that was my moment when I was like, "Wow, this is insanely cool!" But so I just that kind of taste, just I can't imagine when it was like actually finding like a several new species of frogs. It's got to be incredible. Um, but and you kind of answered this question a little bit, but how many? So how many specimens typically do you need to describe a new species? Does it vary? Like if you're talking about like a frog compared to like a lizard or a deer or something, and then um, we'll answer that question. Then I have another question that goes off of it, but. Well, Hollis was the geneticist. And so, you know, back in the day before genetics, um, I think you could describe a new species on one specimen. Mm. Um, but nowadays everybody I've talked to that does the genetic stuff, uh, recommends a minimum of 10. Now there mm -hmm. are some studies out there that We'll just do one or two or three, but usually those are kind of frowned upon. But yeah. Do you have to uh, kill the specimen in order to do it? Do you have to do like a necropsy on it or anything? Or Well, so this uh, tree frog that Amel, that was the guy from uh, France and Korea. Um, when we found that first tree frog, um, because we didn't know whether it was a new species or not, you know, we... It was something we had never found before, mm -hmm. but we needed to find more. Um, we needed to look through more literature, yeah. more field guides, everything. So what he does, which I love, uh, is we would just take uh, buccal swabs, just swab the inside of the mouth. Uh, you can get a preliminary genetic result. So we got a preliminary genetic result that said, yep, this is different. So at that point, yes, you do have to kill them to create a vouchered specimen so that right. other scientists can go to a museum and look at your specimen to verify whether or not, yeah, you are true or you're, you're not true. Yeah. Cool. So you can't have like a type specimen. That's simply a photograph. Right. That makes sense. So uh, speaking of photographing type specimens, you, before the show, we were talking a little bit about uh, you kind of accidentally discovered a few snakes but never got a chance yeah. to you want to go yeah. into that? 
yeah, Matt wasn't here at the time. So yeah, I'll talk about those. So uh, we were talking about new species and I was mentioning how some of the frustration is uh, I've accidentally discovered two new species of snakes, but I didn't know it at the time because the resources I had available, which as I mentioned before, they're pretty much non-existent. Um, they were pointing in a different direction. So uh, 2008, when I went to Shandongjia for the second time with mom and dad, we found this uh, species of wolf snake. So it's um, black with kind of a yellow cream bands and just black, yellow, black, yellow, black, yellow, kind of like a, a common crate if you're familiar with those guys. Yeah. Um, but it's a wolf snake. It's harmless. It's way thinner. And according to the literature, the wolf snake that's supposed to be there in Shenongjia, there's there's two of them. There's a black and white banded one, which is Rustrati's wolf snake, Lycodon Rustrati. And then there's the banded wolf snake, uh, Lycodon uh, fasciatus. So I, you know, we found this wolf snake, took pictures of it, labeled it Lycodon fasciatus on Flickr. And then a couple years later, uh, a German herpetologist sends me an email. He's like, hi, uh, you know, I'm so-and-so. Uh, looks like you have pictures of a new species of snake that I'm describing. Like you have the only live pictures of this snake. Because what he does is he goes to museums and he just looks for strange specimens and then describes it as a new species. Huh. So he describes about 10 snakes a year by doing this, just going to museums, looking wow. for oddball specimens, and then describing a, a snake out of it. Um, so yeah, the name of that snake now is Lycodon uh, Liu Chengchaowai, named after Liu Chengchao, who's a Chinese herpetologist. Um, so I was like, well, crap, you know, that sucks. I had the snake in my hands, but according to the books, it was fasciatus. So I didn't bother to second guess it. Also, it was my first time seeing a Lycodon so again, you know, my exposure was pretty limited. Then in 2012, I went down to Hainan Island um, and I was looking for a species of Rhabdophus, but in the process of looking for the Rhabdophus, I found this one coral snake. Um, Sinomercurus uh, Kellogg-i is what Kellogg's Asian coral snake, I guess would be the common name. Um, and again, there's this one book on Hainan herps that, you know, they have pictures and they have scientific names, pictures and scientific names. They have lots of text, but it's all in Chinese. And I can speak Chinese, but I can't write it or read it. It's extremely complicated to read and write. Um, and so, you know, looking at this book, you open up to the coral snake spot. There's two of them, either McClellan's coral snake or Kellogg's coral snake. So I was like, okay, here's Kellogg's coral snake. And then maybe, I think, 2018, um, I somebody sends me a paper that says, oh, look, a new coral snake from Hainan Island. And I look at the pictures in this paper, and they're the damn Kellogg's coral snake that I caught in Hainan. <laughs> and, and I had always kind of said something about it, because when... You remember that time I was talking about we went road cruising in northern Guangdong when we heard that frog at the parking lot? Well, on that same herping trip, uh, we found a uh, McClellan's coral snake, and we found another Kellogg's coral snake. 
And looking at the Kellogg's coral snake from Guangdong, I was like, wow. When I first saw it, I was like, wow, this Kellogg's coral snake looks pretty different from the Kellogg's coral snake I found in Hainan Island. But I just figured it was, you know, geographic variation. So I didn't bother to say, oh, I need to go, go back to Hainan and collect more specimens. So yeah, the Hainan Island population is now called uh, Sino Mercruis Hoai, named after whoever Ho is. <laughs> um, do you think, I mean, frogs, I feel like are pretty easy to fly under the radar because they're small and they don't get yeah, as but, much attention but as they But you hear, oh wait, okay, keep on going. Sorry. Oh, thought... Sorry. Yeah, I was just saying um, frogs, I feel like fall under the radar a lot because they're smaller and they, um, they don't get as much attention as like snakes and lizards. Um, do you think there's a lot of seeing how that area is just so under surveyed and stuff? Do you, do you think there's a lot of undiscovered like snakes and lizards and other stuff like that in that oh, area? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. There's still a ton. I mean, so, you know, earlier this year, I put out my first book on the Asian rat snakes of China. And so that was published in March. And then in June of this year, a new rat snake was found. <laughs> which I wish I would have known about. It's an amazing snake. And then in July, another two rat snakes were found. So, you know, in March, I put out my book with 19 species. And then by now, you know, three more rat snakes have been found. That's got to be so, that's got to be so cool. I want to go over there so bad. That's got to be so cool. <laughs> um, are these, now, how, how different are these? Like, so for instance, uh, I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're talking about cryptic species versus something that's actually like completely different. Yeah, because like the forest cobra was relatively recently split into seven different like subspecies yeah. and stuff. Like, are they like really like functionally different, or are they? Yeah, I, in my opinion, um, two of them I think are legit, and the third one I don't think is very valid. Okay. Uh, the third one which is also a Hainan Island animal. Um, they are claiming it's something unique based on the fact that the postocular stripe is a little bit different and it has like one extra scale, like cephalic scale. Like it has maybe two L'Oreal scales instead of one L'Oreal scale or maybe an extra super labial scale, like seven instead of six. And that's pretty flimsy in my opinion. I don't recall if they did genetics on it or not. And even if they did do genetics, I'm not a very good person to judge whether or not their methodology was good or not good. Cause I don't know how to do any of that methodology. Um, the one that was described in May or June, I think it was May is legit, completely brand new snake. That's mind blowingly awesome. Um, on my Facebook, I, I posted an image of it, um, congratulating my friend Jin Song Shi, who was uh, one of the guys that described it. So, if you know what Protobothrops uh, jordani, the Jordan's pit viper, that's the one that bit me in 2012. If you know what they look like, if you do a Google search for Protobothrops jordani, specifically the subspecies uh, Xanthomelis melanus. The red spotted Jordan's pit viper. This rat snake is a mimic of Jordan's pit viper. And I mean, how often do you have a rat snake mimicking a viper? Yeah. I can't think of any situation. 
But what also kind of pisses me off a little bit, but not so much, because it's in a it's in the same mountain range where I did my work in Shendongjia, but it's also in a different province, but it's still the same mountain range. And, you know, Jordan's pit vipers are all over Shendongjia, and I've scoured Shendongjia all over. So I know it's really unlikely that this rat snake was in the area, but had I just gone over like another province or two, I would have been in the realm of this new rat snake. And I can understand why it probably went undetected for so long because again, everybody's afraid of snakes there. So all the villagers, whenever they would have seen this rat snake, they just would have run away. And so nobody ever actually, you know, got their hands on a specimen until earlier this year. But um, and I, even when Jinsung told me about it, it was, I think he sent me pictures like a week before the paper was officially published. I was like, please tell me you named it, uh, Jordan I Oides, which, you know, Oides is the Latin suffix for, uh, looks like, you know, like, um, elapsoides, Lampropeltus elapsoides, looks like an elap, elapid. But, uh, so I was hoping he was going to name it Jordan I Oides, but no, he's, said what did they name it? it it's it's not as pretty of a name um uh, no yeah here it is i guess the common name is jeweled serpent no let me just pull up my facebook uh, go ahead with your next question while I look for this. Um, the it's it, the, so there has to be more than a five based on your previous statement. I don't know how much you'll be able to answer like my next question, but the the question leading into that is, um, there has to be more than a five percent um uh, genetic difference for them to be considered two different species, correct? Yeah, yeah. That I think that's typically the standard. Um, what would you, do you know what kind of the average, um, genetic difference there is in between like some of these new species that they're finding? Definitely do not know. Okay. Just curious. Yeah, right. I think I found, uh, that post about that new snake. Okay. It looks amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. If so, I can, can I send a chat on here or not? Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, Elafe Zivodonta. Is that yep. what I said it? Yep. That's it. Yeah. Crazy looking snake. Looks exactly like a Jordani, um, Protobothrops Jordani. Yeah, that is a beautiful looking animal, to yeah. the least. Yeah, so that one, man, when he sent me a picture of it, I was blown away. Yeah. So, um, so also, other than the, uh, Pit vipers and the elapid, well, not elapids, uh, colubrids being very similar. You also mentioned there's coral snakes over in uh, Asia as well. Are those in any way closely related to, or at least somewhat related to the ones we have in the Americas, or are they like a um, group that just looks like so they're given the same name, common name, basically? Yeah, mainly just look likes with the same common name. I mean, they have a fair amount of connection at the family level, but, um, I well, don't know. If, or... 
I mean, you know, Sino Mercurius. So obviously Sino means Asia. So Asia Mercurius. But um, they, the Japanese, there's a couple of Japanese ones that are tricolors. The ones in China are mostly just black and red. But occasionally they'll have really thin white on either side of the black. So yeah, sometimes they can be kind of tricolored, but for the most part, they're they're bicolored. And yes. they're not as um they're not as fidgety as American coral snakes either. You know, if you try to photograph an eastern coral, it's a pain in the ass to get them to pose. And a lot of the South American corals are the same way, but these guys, you know, they're not as spastic. Gotcha. So um, are there any like other major differences between Asian corals and American corals then? Or? Um, no, they like to eat snakes, which our coral snakes do too. A lot of elapids in general seem to love snakes, to eat snakes, even cobras, you know, not just king cobras, of course, but true cobras. They eat almost anything, but they do also love to eat snakes. And obviously crates, crates love to eat snakes. Kings love to eat snakes. The coral snakes do best with snakes or skinks. So, yeah, they have those similarities. And they're usually fossorial, so that similarity as well. Why do you think that is that a lot of lapids eat uh, snakes? Well, if you compare a lapids to vipers, you know, vipers typically have really big heads, whereas a lapids usually have very narrow heads, very narrow venom glands, typically small venom glands. That's why their heads don't stand out. So just like a king snake, you know, king snakes have small heads relative to the body compared to a rat snake. And, you know, rat snakes can eat eggs, birds, rats, mice. They can really stretch that head out like a lot of snakes can. But, you know, typically if you have a, a king snake, you don't want to feed it a massive meal. And that's why naturally king snakes tend to prefer skinks and snakes it's slender you know it doesn't put a lot of stress on on their head and having to expand that head if if you don't have to be uncomfortable eating whatever food it is that you want then it's best to eat food that is comfortable to eat yeah what um i actually honestly have never thought of this till now which i don't know why because i feel like it's kind of an obvious question but what's the evolutionary advantage to um proteroglyphic fangs to like selenoglyphic fangs like function oh, like what easy wow. easy easy so uh you know obviously proteroglyphic if you you're limited in your size of fang so right. when you shut your mouth if your fangs are too big they're going to puncture the bottom of your of your jaw right whereas with a viper solenglyph you're allowed to have a two inch fang in the case of gaboon vipers Right. Because when you close your mouth, they're going to fold up against the roof of your mouth. And additionally, you know, a lot of elapids, as we've already noted, tend to eat slender, more slender meals rather than like a rabbit, for example, or something big, huge, like a rat compared to their body size. So whenever you're going to eat a big, huge prey item compared to your body size, like let's say a rattlesnake with a rabbit or a rattlesnake with a, a squirrel. Um, what a lot of these snakes do, the vipers, the rattlesnakes, is, you know, their, their venom is hematoxic, generally speaking, usually speaking, compared to elapids, which is usually neurotoxic. Um, so hematoxic obviously starts to digest from the inside out when 
while it's in the stomach, it's going from the outside in. So you have two directions of digestion. If all you did was, let's say you just killed the rabbit um, and then fed it to your rattlesnake and never even bothered to envenomate it. So there's no digestion occurring on the inside of that rabbit. The time it takes for the outside stomach acid to get to the inside of that rabbit, that inside is going to start rotting by the time that mm -hmm. that stomach acid gets to it. So the bigger the animal, you have more surface volume, volume to surface yeah. ratio. So you need to increase digestion speed. Otherwise, your food is going to go rotten before you can even digest it. So with these rattlesnakes, you know, big, long fangs, you can get further into the animal, get that venom deeper into the tissue, start the digestion and digest from the inside out while you're also digesting from the outside in. And that way your food doesn't go rotten by the time you actually get to the, the center. That's extremely fascinating. That's really cool. So uh, along those same topics, I don't know if yeah. you're aware, like uh, cane brakes or timbers, yeah. hortus. Yeah. Um, as babies, uh, they have a higher neurotoxic um, concoction, I guess. Right. And then as they get older and become adults, the venom composition switches to a more hemotoxic right. composition. Yeah. See, I've heard something like that before, but instead of from juvenile to adult, I heard it was like more like a northern population versus southern population. But yeah, I've heard it. I heard it from I heard from people who I wouldn't put a lot of stock in their opinion on. So well, I've also heard that as well, except it was like the ones up in Kentucky are I may have this backwards, but the ones up in Kentucky are more neurotoxic and the ones in Georgia are more hemotoxic, generally speaking. You might be talking about the fact that there's a type A, B, and C. Okay. And there is a type A venom profile, a type B venom profile, and a type C venom profile. But in addition to those, the type A, the B, and the C, um, you also have this change from juvenile to adult. Mm, okay. okay. Is that so... Would that be backwards then? Like, so, like, say one's more neurotoxic as an adult, would the baby be more uh, hemotoxic? Like, would that be opposite of? Yeah, typically, as a baby, you're not eating very large prey items, so okay, it's more yeah. neurotoxic as a juvenile because all you yeah. care about is is killing it and not right. worrying about a huge volume to surface ratio right. problem. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what what happens? I mean, I don't know if you know this. What happens like physically um, for that chemical change to occur? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's age uh, induced. I don't know if it's size induced. I I failed biochemistry. I do <laughs> not. I hate chemistry. Um, so I don't know the genetics. I'm not good at, and biochemistry. I'm not good at. And if you study venom, you need to be a biochemist. Right. Uh, Matt, you got any other questions? I did actually have another question, um, but we started talking about the fangs, and now I don't remember. <laughs> um, it was something off of what you said, though. But I did finally pull up that picture of that of the uh, that snake, and it's the rat snake. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Man, yeah, so Xiphon Danta, I think. It just, yeah. it just means um, different toothed. Mm. 
And apparently, so Oligodon is a genus of snake that's very common in Asia. Apparently, this Alafi has a very similar dentition to Oligodon. And, you know, Oligodon, what makes them really cool is, are you guys familiar with that genus? No, I'm not. Okay. Uh, the common name is called the Kukri snakes. Are you familiar with a Kukri? I've heard that name before. I can't. It's a it's a type of machete. Oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. Used okay, by okay. Indian Indian soldiers, yeah, and right. it's kind of curved. And so, oh, right, yeah, okay. Oligodons, uh, they have rear teeth, not fangs, but enlarged rear teeth that are shaped kind of like a Kukri blade, and they will use these rear teeth to essentially slice open eggs because they're mainly reptile egg eaters, but most reptile eggs are bigger than they are. So they'll essentially slice the egg, stick their head in the egg, lap up all the yolk, and then move on. And so this alafi uh, has dentition very similar to oligodon. So that's why they gave it the name different toothed Xyphodonta. So, so these... So those uh, Laffey's Avidanta, do those guys have a similar diet to those cookery snakes, or is that unknown at the moment? It's unknown at the moment. That, that makes sense, yeah. Um, uh, I just I re-remembered the question, and now I just forgot it again. <laughs> um, it's... Um, like the coral snakes... Coral... Um, now I heard this in passing, so I'm not sure. I don't. I don't. I haven't looked too deeply into coral snakes. I don't know a ton about them, but, but you're from South Florida. I, I know. I know. I know. Uh, well, I just moved down here, so that, okay. that's my excuse. Um, well, you're from uh, Georgia. Yeah. Well, okay. You're ruining <laughs> it, Nate. <laughs> um. Anyways, it's coral snakes generally uh, burrow a lot. Correct. Or they're yeah. generally in burrows a lot. Yeah. yeah. The the ones in um, China and Asia, they, do they burrow a lot as well? Yep. Okay. Yep. Fossorial, primarily. Primarily. Um. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. Any other questions, Matt? No, I think. I think that's all my questions. All right. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything you want to add on to end here, Kevin, or? Uh, no. I, I guess if anybody has um, is curious about China, they can uh, send me messages on Facebook, or um, I'm on Flickr. Um, I'm on Instagram as China underscore Herper. Uh, if you guys yeah, want, you then. if you want um, a book that's in English on <laughs> on some Chinese snakes, you know, look up my book on Amazon. Otherwise, would it be pretty difficult to just take a casual herping trip over there? Uh, no, it's not. I mean, right now it is, well, but yeah. uh, once everything is settled, once international flights and whatnot is back to being normal, no, it's not difficult at all. the The only thing you need is a visa. Uh, it would just be a tourist visa. Actually, for U.S. citizens, uh, it's a ten year visa. So once you get it, you're good for ten years. Holy cow! Um, oh yeah, okay. I, I was just what I was curious because you know you said it's like just an expanse of just like remote wild. It is. 
if I were to, if your timing is limited and if you wanted to go the easiest way possible, I would recommend either Hong Kong or Taiwan. Uh, neither of those require a visa. Uh, Hong Kong is pretty expensive unless you have friends where you can couch crash on couches like I always do. Um, Taiwan is really good for road cruising. Uh, Hong Kong is not so good for road cruising. Everything we do in Hong Kong is walking, um, but everything we do in Taiwan is road cruising. Gotcha. And, and, and Taiwan is huge. Like I've only been to the northern part of Taiwan. I've never been to central or south. Whereas in Hong Kong, you can go from one side to the other side in three hours. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. It's been a really great uh, experience. From I've learned, really have learned a lot here. Sure yeah, thing. this actually was really cool and fascinating. So. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good one. All right. You too. See ya.